still in my seat. Oh, is it you want to go to sleep? That's Zoe. That's Zoe. Stop. on page 13, top right-hand corner, the song of a sense, since song is our uh, focus this time. Song of a sense, when I I will return to the captivity of Zion, we will be like dreamers, and our mouth will be filled with laughter and our tongue with glad song. Then they will declare among the nations, Adonai has done great with these. Adonai has done greatly with us. We were gladdened. Oh, Adonai, return of captivity like springs in the desert. Those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seeds walks among weeping, walks along weeping, but he will return in exaltation, a bearer of his sheep. Thank you, sir. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai. May all flesh bless his holy name forever. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good, his kindness endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Behold, I am ready, I am prepared to be perform the positive commandment of Birkat Hamazon, for it is said, You shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land which he gives you. Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. With the permission of the distinguished people present, let us bless he of whose we have eaten. Blessed is he of whose we have eaten and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is he of whose we have eaten and through whose goodness we live. Let's see. Mr. Spurlock, would you be kind enough, sir, to give us the next one? Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who nourishes the entire world. In his goodness, with grace, with kindness, with mercy, he gives nourishment to all flesh. 
For his kindness is eternal, and through his great goodness we have never lacked. And may we never lack nourishment for all eternity. Why do we ask for this? For the sake of his great name, for he is God who nourishes and sustains all and benefits all, and he prepares food for all of his creatures that he has created. As it is said, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed are you, Adonai, who nourishes all. Amen. Uh, we ran out of, we ran low on men, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Wait, what's up with that? Chu, do you want to give us the next one there? As the, we thank you, or yes, sir. Okay. We thank you, Lord our God, because you have given to our forefathers as a heritage of desirable, good, and spacious land, because you have, because you removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Egypt, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage. For your covenant that you sealed in our flesh, for your Torah that you taught us, and for your statutes that you made known to us life, grace, and loving kindness that you have granted us, and for the provision of food which you nourish and sus sustain us constantly, in every day, every season, and in every act. Top of the page. For all, Adonai, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of all the living, continually, continuously for all eternity, as is written, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai, our God, for the good land that he gave you. Bless you, Lord, our God, for the night and for the nourishment. Not me. Joshua, would you give us uh, the next one, please? Including that little pig. Have mercy, we beg you, Adonai our God, and Israel your people, on Jerusalem your city, on Zion, resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us, Adonai our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not evil, Adonai our God, as a gift of human hands, nor their loans, but only of your hands it is fully, full, open, holy, and generous, that we not feel inner shame nor be humiliated forever and ever. May it please you, Adonai, our God, to give us rest through your commandments and through the commandments of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you to rest on it and be content on it in love, as ordained by your will. May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of your contentment. And show us, Adonai, our God, the consolation of zeal in your city, and the, rebuilding, and the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, the city of your holiness. For you are the master of salvations and master of consolations. Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, soon in our days. Blessed are you, Adonai, who you rebuild Jerusalem in your mercy. Amen. Joshua, would you uh, give us the next one? The pattern here, we got Spurlock, Spurlock, Joshua, Joshua. <laughs> Bless you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King who is good and who does good for all. For every single day he did good, he does good, and he will do good to us. He was bountiful with us, he is bountiful with us, and he will be forever be bountiful with us. With grace, and with kindness, with mercy, with relief, salvation, success, blessing, help, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good, and of all good things, may never deprive us. The Compassionate One, may He reign over us forever. Amen. The Compassionate One, may He be blessed in heaven and on earth. Amen. Amen. The Compassionate One, may He be praised throughout all generations, may He be glorified through us forever to the ultimate ends, and be honored through us forever and for all eternity. Amen. The Compassionate One, may He sustain us in honor. Amen. The Compassionate One, may He break the yoke of our oppression from our necks and guide us direct to our land. Amen. The Compassionate One, may He send us abundant blessing to this house and upon this table. What do you Amen. The Compassionate One, may He send us the Elijah the Prophet, He is remembered for good, to proclaim to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. Everyone. May it be God's will that this host not be shamed or humiliated in this world or in the world to come. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful and can be given close at hand. 
May no evil impediment reign over his handiwork, and may no semblance of sin or iniquitous thought attach itself to him from this time and forever. Amen. Confession one, may he bless the master of this house, the lady of this house, then their house, the family, and all that is theirs. The confession. The confession one, may he bless me, my wife, and my children, and my grandchildren, and all that is mine. Ours, all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything, so may he bless us all together with the perfect blessing. Let us say, Amen. Me. Is this where you started singing last night? Me? Oh, uh, yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Would you uh, do us the honor and let us uh, hear and start to learn this uh, wonderful song? Oh, okay. Okay, Sophia, I heard you singing last yeah, night Sophia. with your dad and mom. Daddy doesn't want to be the only one singing. Okay, <laughs> so let's, let's get, we want to hear your beautiful voice too, okay? We're going to start with... Okay, good, good. Ready? <laughs> Hi, Jonathan. I hope you feel better. Hi, Jonathan. I hope you feel better. 
Don't shave ever. That's right. Don't shave ever. Yeah. If uh, if he and Andy are listening, then uh, they've heard that. That's great. Uh, perhaps the McDonald's are listening. Uh, certainly the Browns down in Florida. There's uh, at last count, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure about uh, the uh, the portion discussion, but uh, last Tuesday night's uh, men's class, there were 13 unique listeners. Uh, so we're we're having an impact, and hopefully we do having an impact on our own lives as well. So. Yes, ma'am. I just I had a text from Rebecca Hopkins, and she said they had really hoped to come today because Nehemiah was off, but their kids woke up a little congested. So she said to say hi, hi to everybody. Mm -hmm. Hi, everybody. Do you, do hi, are they listening? I don't know. Why don't you text back uh, and you know break the commandment if you have to? Oh, it's like the app and everything. You don't need an app. Just go to the, go to Minotaur. Click the link. Um, okay. Minotaur Resource Page. There it is. Um, I think we. Yes, ma'am. I hear that you say. Megan and Kira lives in Florida. Yes. Florida? Yeah, Tom and Mary Brown. That's Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Yeah, they make two, two separate things, Sophia. Megan and Kira live in Canada. Grandpa just said that Yeah, I'm just trying to name all Florida. the different people. Some are up in Canada, some are down in Florida, and some are in the great state of North Carolina. We don't know. Knowing the difference in geography is important. Good job. That's right. That's right. Anybody in Florida? There it is. I think we did all our announcements, and everybody that was here is here, so we don't have to do this again. So, green light. Okay. Sure you would. Cool. I guess I'll just sort of stay here, so that means you can pat me on the shoulder. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know if that will happen. Uh oh. In case, uh, well, you're gonna have, I'm going to expect you to. I mean, slide over. Me, so you're my point of view. Um, <laughs> um, that, uh, no, I was actually going to ask Sophia a question. Sophia, what do we with the with the challah on Friday night? What do you do with it? What do you put on it? Before you eat it, what's on top? It's what Daddy does on his plate. I don't put salt on it. No, put salt on it. But what's? Do you have? Is it? Is it just laying there, or do you have like a special cover on it? It's the challah cover. The challah cover. Do you know why we have a challah cover? Why do you have a challah cover? I don't know. You don't know? Well, there's lots of reasons to do the challah cover. Some of them. One of them is that sometimes we. We cover up the challah because the wine, uh, usually the challah gets the first blessing. They're number one. But with, on Friday night, we bless God for the wine first. So instead, we don't want the challah to feel embarrassed that it has to be second when it's normally first. So we cover the challah so it doesn't know. Second-born thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, of course, this is a little bit of a silly concept, but the idea behind it is good. To say that like we want to protect the feelings of the challah, so to speak, how much more so we want to protect the feelings of an actual person being careful not to embarrass them in public. Right. But there's another reason for the challah cover. Um, another reason is that my dad always used to say is it reminds us of um, when Yeshua was in the grave because he would compare it to the uh, the folding of the head the headpiece around when Yeshua rose from the dead. It was like you take it off and it's like he's the bread of life. We're kind of having this like reveal, you know, like coming out of the tomb, you know. So this is kind of this moment to remember the resurrection. But another reason for the challah cover comes from this week's portion. Talk about the idea that the ground was covered. Do you know what the ground was covered with, Sophia? It's no. like it's like bread, but it's not bread. Do you know what they called it? No. It was on the ground. They ate. There was lots of it. Food. What kind of food? Mm. We can ask Micah. Do you know what the phrase was, was? What kind of food? What? Manna. Manna. All right. <laughs> so now, now, Micah, you tell me something important. You're a math guy here. So how many... 
what was what was unusual about the manna? What was the one day where the manna was not normal? Actually, there were two days. So the amount of manna changed. Well, on Saturday there was no manna. Before. There was no manna, but how much manna was on Friday? Twice the amount. Twice the amount. Why was there twice the amount of manna? So you could gather enough on Friday and Saturday. And Saturday. So in our home, a lot of times when we have the little challah cover, I'll point out that like the the cover and bread reminds us the ground was covered with manna, and that specifically on Friday God put extra manna so that there would be enough for Shabbat. And what this teaches us is that there's always provision for Shabbat. Because especially as a, as a man, when you're working, sometimes you feel like you might have to work on Shabbat. Did we work on Shabbat, Sophia? No. No, we do not work on Shabbat. Thank you for being so firm on that. Um, but it's hard. You know, it's a hard thing. And, um, and it's a challenge. And so it's like, and, and for some people, you know, they, they might have to or whatever else. But for like, it's one of those things where like, it's, it's, a, it's really a difficult thing as a man to feel like you might need more money, you know, or whatever it might be. And it's good for, like, to remember that God does take care of us. He provides on for Shabbat by not working. You know, especially when we're in an agrarian society, growing crops and stuff, taking a day off once a week is a big deal. So it's like, then you're going to, so it's a reminder that God's going to take care of them. So he gave the extra manna to remind us he provides. Broadly, we know from our, our, our uh, we just sang, oh, they just sang. I wasn't singing that. Joshua, before. before you go on, just most of the children here probably don't think of work as a bad thing. Work is not they, bad because their fathers have taught them that work is a good thing. Work is so, a good thing. So understanding that we don't work on Shabbat actually means that it's not because we're tired of work. Right. It actually, it's something we're giving up. Right. We're choosing not to. That's right. Absolutely right. It's not because we're so glad we don't have to work. Whoa, what a deal that is. No, we have to give work up because God told us to. God told us to. So we don't work, and the manna reminds us the fact that God will provide for us when we're not working. Because that, because yeah, I mean, you know, it can be. I think as a man, it's scary sometimes to think about any kind of work because you feel like you're you're the guy, you're responsible, you know, your family's depending on you. So anytime you can't work, whatever reason, that's a little intense. So God's reminding us that He's the one who ultimately provides, which is what we get from the uh, Berakah Hamazon at the end. What they were singing is, I, you know, I was young and I've been grown old and never seen a righteous man forsaken. The idea is that God will always provide, and that is ultimately what we learn from the story of the manna, and that's kind of what He's trying to teach them. In fact, that's one of the things when we get to the end of the whole journey, one of the reasons they say that the ten spies were reluctant to go into the land of Israel is they were afraid that life was going to be real. Life was going to be, like, normal. They liked the miracles. They liked having God so close to them all the time. And the thought of having to, like, try to find God in normal life was scary. You know, they, they enjoyed being close to him in a supernatural way. So... Hey, you, you come stay with me. Absolutely. Anyway, so the many things we can learn from the manna. I know that this little guy likes to eat food, and if there was manna today, he would really enjoy it, I'm sure. <laughs> One of the other things I thought this week that was kind of weird, going to back to the beginning of the portion, is a Hebrew word I did not notice before, is that we talk about the cloud and the fire. So the word, the pillar of cloud, right? The word there is the same word used for standing. So it's like imagine that the cloud or the fire is standing up, um, which is really just kind of a cool concept. Like instead of thinking of it like this pillar, it's almost like it's almost like it's like a person standing up. That was kind of a cool way to think of that. But I don't, you know, go ahead. I, this is this is the part where you all can jump. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I noticed uh, it, it probably in that same verse uh, something. That may or may not be true, but uh, fourteen nineteen, 
the angel of God, who had been going in front of the Israelite camp, moved and went behind them. Of course, mine adds to intercept the arrows and catapult stones of Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, That's cool. Right. Mm -hmm. At night, the pillar of cloud moved away from in front of them and stood behind them, instead of disappearing as it usually did. Okay. So, regardless of what version you're reading, I think there is this concept that the angel of God and this pillar of cloud are two different things. Really? I don't see it the same. But I always did. Read it in your version. What's your version say? You've the got the inspired version. 1419. Okay, so sincere, the angel of God who had been going in front of the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved in front of the men behind them. Okay. Okay. So I never saw that before. I had always thought that the, the cloud was a representation, like the Shekinah is a representation of Hashem. Thank you. A messenger or angel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So here it appears that the angel who was going with them, which later is referred to as the rock that went with them, which later is referred to as, well, Yeshua, um, is not the cloud and is not the fire. Different deal. Kind of like an Elijah feel. It's yeah. not the cloud. Yeah. It's not the cloud. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I, I just I never saw that before. That's um, something new. That is cool. I think also the, the water is split here in this in this dramatic telling of the Red Sea. There's the um, it's it says that there's a wall for them on their right and their left. The the version I was reading in in the Chabad website almost made it sound like it was a wall protecting them on their right and their left. I'd always kind of thought of it as like it's a it's a tunnel, you know, kind of a water, this like valley of water, and the water is the danger, and it's now it's been it's been blown out of the way. It's shaped. Well, it's the other way around. But it almost feels like the water is actually like God is. God is actually using the water to protect the people of Israel. Mm. Just one way of looking at it, because certainly it was channeling the Egyptians into one place, sure. uh, limiting their options, so to speak. Mm. Also, another cool thing, uh, Rabbi Foreman last week had a great little lesson on the idea of God pardoning Pharaoh's heart. And talking about this question, it's like, so we, we you know, believe that, um, well, we do believe in the sovereignty of God. It's like, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable talking about like God, like with like supernaturally making him, you know, I'm going to, you know, I really want to serve God. No, you will not serve me. But actually, the, the, the Rabbi Foreman's take on it was that God was hardening his heart through a much more natural means by playing off of his ego. That like Moses and Pharaoh, or Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they're like, how long until you bow before us? You know, and Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to bow before anybody. You know, basically kind of like ticking him off, so to speak. And if, if ultimately that's Pharaoh's fault. You know, he should be humble enough to, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> you are God, I'm not, you know, whatever. But in this case, it feels the same way here. It's like God plays with Pharaoh. You know, he has the Israelites kind of going in the circle. They're kind of lost, acting like they're lost in the wilderness. Pharaoh's like, there they are, wandering the wilderness. Let's go after them. In fact, it says that they were told that the people of Israel had fled. Who told them? Um, then it's also, there's the, the later account when you talk about the, the Red Sea splitting. The whole setup just, it feels like a setup. It's like one of those movies, you know, you've seen like the, uh, you know, you've watched Ocean's Eleven or one of the other TV shows or movies where it's like at the end of it, you're like, oh, they were actually acting stupid on purpose. <laughs> they were just setting up the bad guy. He thought that they were, wow. That's basically what's happening right here. God is setting Pharaoh up. Uh, and Pharaoh, rather blindly, runs right into it. And it's too late when he realizes this is a problem. Yeah. 
Go ahead. So, um, 14, 10. Going backwards. We can go anywhere. Well, I thought the first one was really cool. That's right. This one's different. 14, 10. They were very frightened, so the children of Israel cried out to God. And Rashi's comment here is really cool. Uh, he says, what does he say? That, um, so these, these other two guys, Barthedora and Gur Arye, um, immediately after the Jewish people prayed to God, they complained to Moshe that he had brought them out of Egypt only to die in the desert. And this shows that they didn't really believe that God would save them, so their prayers to God must have been more of a complaint than a sincere prayer. But hmm. Rashi says, no, wait, wait. They practiced the profession of their ancestors. And he goes on to say that they didn't pray to God because they really believed he would save them, but because they were just accustomed to praying every day. So they prayed, and it really wasn't heartfelt. The Kavanah wasn't there. Um, so the custom that they had wasn't, wasn't good enough. But the fact that they that they adopted the profession of their ancestors is what Menachem picks up on. And he says, we can learn a practical lesson from this. Whether these people were praying properly or out of rote or whatever, he says that as believers, we should perceive prayer and likewise Torah study as a profession. We shouldn't feel the urge to pray only when a problem arises and we need God's help. And similarly, a person shouldn't study the Torah only when he needs to know what to do. Rather, we should perceive prayer and Torah study as our profession, which we devote ourselves to constantly, regardless of whether there's a direct need to do so or not. And when we approach people, we shouldn't think, he doesn't look like he's going to pray every day, doesn't look like a big Torah scholar or like he's going to study the Torah. We should just embrace them and bring them along and teach them. Well, in praying, it's interesting how much the word cried out shows up over and over and over again in this in the in the book of Shemot and Exodus up yeah. to this point. Um, we see that word used quite a bit. And that's kind of an ironic thing about complaining. So at this point, they're freaking out because they're just trapped by water. In a chapter, they're going to be, a chapter and a half, they're going to be crying out because there is no water. Um, and it's kind of like, it's funny how life sometimes feels that way. You know, you're... You're asking God, you know, I really, really need whatever. I need this job. You know, I really, I, my current job is rough. I need this new job. Then about, how, you know, one year later, same guy, really needs you to help me work through this job, you know, or whatever it might be. Or it's like, it's everything. Because really, I think that's one of the things that kind of boils down to is like everything in life has challenges. Everything in life is a struggle. You know, we're struggling to have a baby. Ask us in six months from now, we'll be struggling with the baby, you know, dealing with the, the challenge. It's a new challenge, you know? It's a new difficulty. You're praying out to God for a different reason. And the idea is that God's always there, and that God always is going to provide for whatever the situation might be. Um, and as you're pointing out, yeah, we have, we have to take that opportunity to cry out to God. In fact, in some ways, in fact, based on the way that the, the, the sages talk about it, it's like God loves the cries of the righteous so much, it's like he's going to put those righteous people in those situations to that they need to pray. Yeah. So it's like, you know... 
chasing start to go I would have I would have said well that was a neat trick I could look it's lunchtime let's go home now but they followed him in and it appears from the text I, I don't know but it appears it wasn't until the chariot wheels got really shaky that were like whoa this is the hand of God what did you think that pillar of fire was how about this water standing up on its edge like that you know, you know. I think it, you know. I think it's interesting. That I think that's exactly right because when you're reading the story, they don't seem to notice anything until then. Dull. I don't think it's dull though. I really don't. I think it's blind. There's a difference. I don't think that they were stupid. I think they saw it as supernatural. Remember, Egypt is not unusual, uh, uh, like confused by the supernatural. 
that according to tradition, they are the home of the supernatural. Sure, I'm going to get the guys I mean, doing the snakes. and the, Haven't you the seen the History Channel episode or whatever else talking about how the Red Sea really split? Right, and God, right. You know, there was this weird, like, typhoon that came through, and it's like, it's exactly what happens today. I mean, if we had a group of atheists chasing them, they would have gone right in the middle of the Red Sea. They're like, this is weird. I guess we'll go follow them. I mean, it, yeah, it's like, because whatever reason, it's like, it's, when people don't want to accept that God is king, they will see everything but that. Yeah. And that, I think, is happening here. Yeah. There is a, I think there's a joke, Joshua, that's um, about, like, a new person reading the Bible that's like, wow, you know, God just split the sea. This is amazing, you know? And then, like, the older Christian is like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, with seasonal patterns and the location and the wind and everything, the sea was really only a couple inches deep anyway so at that time of year. So it's really not a big deal. And then a couple minutes later, they're like, God just drowned a whole army in a couple yeah. inches of water. like, well, I don't, I don't know if I really even believe in evolution. You know, like, and the guy just totally loses it. He's like, this is absolute fact. You have to believe in this. Like, how could you not? And I'm looking at Juliana, it's like, okay, having actually taken biology and learned, like, hypothesis, theory, fact, we're not even to the theory stage. Like, like technically, evolution is called a theory, but it's really only a hypothesis. We've right. never seen it happen. That's right. And yet, in spite of that, Evolutionists to this day. I mean, even today, like that, the TV show was was playing off as being funny, but that's normal. You actually have people out there who are so convinced this is fact. That not only are you stupid if you don't believe in that, they actually regard almost like it's like. Well, I mean, there's really only two things you can get wrong. One is to be racist and or Nazi, and the other is to not agree with evolution. Like those are like that's like the ultimate sin. And it's like it's just crazy, but it's the same idea what we're talking about here. It's like that blindness of not seeing. Yeah. But I think the scary part is that's true for us, too. You know, have you ever had that moment when you're tempted to do something wrong? It's like, what, you don't think God's going to, A, notice, and B, deal with you somehow because of that? But in the moment, you're thinking to yourself, I'm sure I can get away with this somehow. God loves me too much to, like, get me, you know, he doesn't want to do anything really bad to me. You know, like, whatever the reason might be, and it's like, the, there's a psalm, and the psalm, the psalm's of the day, the Thursday psalm, I think it is. It, it, or, no, I'm sorry, it's Wednesday psalm. And he's like... Who created the eyes? Yeah. Who created the ears? It's like God's not going to deal with you. Come on, but we don't. We don't see it. Well, it reminds me of Revelation, where people are undergoing all these terrible things, and they know that God is causing yeah. these things, and yet they still harden their hearts and right. curse Him. And it reminds me of this: is the same idea yeah. that yes, maybe He's powerful enough to do this, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do anything to be more angry at Him. Right. Weird. <laughs> Very confusing. Um, I've got one other thing I was going to mention, and we can just kind of open it up to whatever people have to say with the portion. In the uh, towards the end of the portion, there's an. Uh, did anyone see the date? I think it's the chapter. What is it? Seventeen. It's, it's a month after his second case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So cool point. So the, the there's a moment there with the um, with the complaining that doesn't go so well. Um, 
No, they make a big deal. Actually, no, it's, it's early. Put the mana. So it's uh, it says 16, right? Yeah, 16. So it's chapter one, verse 16, verse 1. They journeyed from Elim, the tired simile, the children of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Sin, just between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month from the departure from the land of Egypt. So this would be second Pesach, right? And it says, this whole thing is in the next verse is the entire assembly of the children of Israel complained. And what's cool is they complained because they said, if only we died in Egypt, now you give us no food, whatever. What's great about it is thinking about the whole idea of Tikkun Olam, a couple books later, there's a group of guys that are so into the commandment of God on the fifteenth day of the second month, they're coming to or, or the, or the first, first month, excuse yeah. me. They're coming to Moses saying, like, "Hang on, we what about us? We and I rather than had to do with death, you know, actual death, not you know, why well, should bring us here to kill us, us. but actually a guy that died that they took care of, and they're going, we want to keep the commandments of God, we want to do what God wants, and God says the second month, the fifteenth day. So we had to read this to remember that the fifteenth day of the second month is when they complained about the manna. This day gets redeemed by those guys because they were so committed to the mitzvot that God actually makes that date about them and not about this. But that was cool. They actually it has an atonement like the entire nation by these guys. Any other comments on the portion? One thing I thought was cool was that it captures scripture captures all of the complaining because obviously, like so, you know. In writing this, you could have really tried to be as, as one-sided as possible. There was plenty of, of, of silly things that the Egyptians were doing to where it could have been like, Israel was amazing, Egypt was bad, and like that's the end of the story. But it captures all of their complaining and all of these moments of weakness, and it, it totally makes sense because this is something that we, we have in the prayers every single morning for, for Shakari. And without those those weaknesses from the children of Israel being there right alongside the song of the sea, like I think it wouldn't be as practical for us nowadays. Because mm. that's how we all are. Right? It's real, like, it's real mean, stuff. Yeah, it, it makes it so much more realistic for me especially because I'm sitting here going like, well there's times where I sound exactly like that. And reading that someone else sounded exactly like that, but then reading the response to, from Hashem, it's as if he's responding to you because you're sounding you're sounding like one of them. Right, right. It's just it's really a neat uh, a neat way of, of preserving something very special for us by including all of the, uh, the complaints. And it's kind of like in the apostolic writings. They're like you know people say, oh well, you know Peter and his buddies they colluded, they wrote the gospels together to make sure it all looked like they all saw the same thing. They it's like why number one they don't get things all lined up as we've been seeing because of the gospels, and that's obviously it's ironically enough a sign to their legitimacy, not the other way around. But at the same time, it's like. Why would they put in all this negative stuff? They make themselves look really bad sometimes. Yeah. It's like, that's not really what normal people do. So it's like, it seems, it, again, it reinforces the authenticity of it because it's yeah. like, well, why would, like, if if some guy in the land of Israel 500 years later is writing this story, making it up as he goes, he's not going to make the people of Israel look lame. He's going to want to make them look like they were perfect. You know, yeah. that was the point. But then, but this proves, oh, not proves, you don't need to prove, but... It's a reinforcing that God is the one uh, author of this, and that He He thinks it's important that we know the things that didn't go so well. See the American Civil War, history of the American Civil War, perfect, perfect example. The history of the American Civil War is completely and totally one-sided. Right, because the people that write the history are the ones that win. Right, that's right. Same there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and I think it's interesting. Like I mean, almost any time, everything's kind of like a golden era, you know. And then it's only when you read like the book written by the guy that had their PhD in the era, then you realize, oh, this wasn't so nice. <laughs> There's a lot of bad things that happened here. 
But but God's not that way. You know, when He tells the story, He gives you all of the details. Right. For our benefit. So For our benefit. Yeah. Exactly. So we can grow together. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Absolutely. Other other thoughts. We can just go to the pop jar if we want to. But just I just want to. Uh, that uh, Menachem puts in here was pretty cool because um, the water got sweetened. The yeah. tree in there and it got sweetened. Right? So um, he says there's three ways to sweeten bitter waters. The first way is that you can dilute it with a large amount of fresh water. Okay. That works. Um, the second way is transforming the bitter flavor into a sweet one. That is, one adds an extremely powerful agent that is capable of transforming a bitter flavor into a sweet one. Okay. And that's the opinion of the Zohar, he says, that a piece of the tree of life was used to overwhelm <laughs> the waters. How cool is that? That's cool. Right? And then the last one is uh, self-realization, making the bitter waters realize how bad it is to be bitter so they make themselves sweet. Okay. So yeah, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, yeah, this is a bunch of hooey. Whereas, you know, he takes it and says, no, so this is what the guy who wrote the Melkilta, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korka, says, that the waters were sweetened by adding bitter wood. Huh. Not sweetened, but adding bitter wood, right? So these three approaches correspond to three methods of eliminating evil. The first one is combating. So you combat or dilute the evil with good. We overcome it with good, right? So the second way would be revealing a much greater good that makes the evil fade away. So we show them it's better. And then finally, C, teaching the evil how bad it is so that it no longer wishes to be evil, which sounds weird, but he says that's exactly the approach of the Baal Tshuva. He realizes he is not godly, and he wants to become godly, and he draws closer to God. Well, in talking better. about the stages of repentance, yeah. um, Judaism sees that as being a critical element, is when you finally decided that you're disgusted with your sin. That's it. You don't want to sin anymore because you really can't stand it. I was thinking about uh, the Amalek situation, which is also this week's portion, and I feel like there's a couple of tips there to dealing with like your own personal Amalek, mm -hmm. and I think one of them is ultimately God. It's like, I mean, even, even uh, Alcoholics Anonymous starts with you believe in the power greater than yourself. Power, yeah. um, another element is, is having uh, support. Uh, Moses has his friends there helping him out. Um, but I think the third thing, I think it's also kind of helpful sometimes, is, is forgetting. Um, that's one of the things he makes a big point. Like, you're going to wipe out the memory of Amalek. You remember to wipe out the memory of Amalek. Because I think that sometimes when you're fighting something, you can get so obsessed with fighting it that that becomes your... Your obsession. So instead of getting rid of it, you actually end up reinforcing it. Yeah. You keep thinking about it. So like this idea is almost like, don't. That doesn't mean that you should never remember it. Remember to forget it. It's like maybe take that time to remind yourself, I don't want to do this, and then forget about it. You know, it's like yeah. it's almost like you know, it's, it, 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 kind of breaking it down that way. One of the interesting things that Rashi. So Rashi is not typically like very out there like uh like the midrash or something like that no, but when not. he is it really stands out and one of the things that that he had pointed out was in the portion where uh in, in 17 where moshe is about to strike the rock like the way that he points out the this this phraseology in uh, in hebrew is that he doesn't say like strike like on top of the rock it's like strike into the rock is the way that the Hebrew plays there. 
And so he, he just says, matter-of-factly, as if everybody knows this, well, that was because Moshe's staff was made of sapphire. And so <laughs> it actually did. It was harder than rock, and it split the thing in half. That's cool. And it's like, wow. I mean, that, it's just, you're so used to reading, you know, such, like, historical stuff from him and, you know, kind of, like, logical things. But, yeah, he, that, was, that was his point. That changes Moshe's the... Staff. The Charlton Heston image, right? You know, he's got this big, giant, golden blue thing, you know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I know. So you mentioned earlier the songs. Yeah. Important thing about the songs. So there are there are nine songs in Scripture, according to tradition. That's not to say that there are only nine times people are singing. The point is that a song, according to the sages in this case, is a prophetic song. So it's a song that they sing where it's like the Holy Spirit comes upon the person and the words they're using is coming straight from God and yeah. it's like, it's a big deal. Right. Um, and there are nine of those. So one of them, of course, is in the, is in the parasha with the Song of the Sea. The other one is in the Haftarah, the Song of Deborah. Um, and the sages point out that all of them in the scriptures are feminine. Which would make sense. Cause Except the, word, the tenth one, oh. which is masculine because it's the song we sing with the Shia. Mashiach. Which is interesting because in the book of Revelation there is mentioned the song of Moses and the song of Mashiach, which I think is intriguing. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, right, so it, where, where are we going? For the Haftarah is in Judges chapter 4 through 5. It starts in verse 4 of chapter 4. Page 306 if you got us. That one. It's 1152 like if you've got one like mine. <laughs> yeah. Or if you have a normal Bible or the internet, you can just look it up in Judges chapter 4. So um, first thing I think it says out on this one, very quickly, it mentions Deborah as the wife of Lapidot. Well, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. One tradition, which I think is kind of cool, is it has to do with lapid, which is the, which is the word for like a, a flame or candle. And so there's a tradition that holds that she was the one who made candles for the sanctuary. And, which is pretty cool. Like that, I think, emphasizes her, you know, closeness to God. They also say that she would have, encourage her husband to go take the candles, deliver them to the sanctuary, so that he get a chance to rub elbows with the priests and expand his Torah knowledge. Um, which is a cool way of doing that, you know, to try to help him along without really making him feel bad. Uh, which is interesting because Deborah is not a weak woman. I mean, I think that's one of the There's things. Like, you hear that story, you hear the story of that, and it's like this is this is proof that like a woman should never tell her husband ever, anything any time that he's wrong. It's like that's really not the way that the strong women in the Bible are. Sarah is presented by Peter as being like the, the premier uh, woman who respects her husband, but. One of the times she's in, in scripture, they they in the Talmud they call they say that she's she's also known as Iska. The reason they say that is because the name Iska has to do with seeing, and they say that she was a prophetess. She like every time she spoke, basically she's like speaking the words of God. Like yeah, so when God tells Abraham, listen to your wife about Ishmael, it's because she knew what she was saying. So the thing is, it's like it's not so much that the woman can't speak; it's about like knowing how to do that, mm. balancing that. So Sarah, on the one hand, is very strong. And just like Deborah, powerful woman. And at the same time, she like she balanced that. She was submissive as well. And it's like understanding like some women are a more meek and mild nature. And that's totally fine. And some women are like powerhouses. And like they both have responsibilities before God. And yet at the same time, like, you know, so they have some things they have to do the same. In some ways, God's gonna use their character differently. Right. So with Deborah, you know, she found ways to balance it. So with but maybe with uh, helping her husband learn, she's going to have him go very gently go to the, get the candles done. With Barack, she's going to call him out on his face and be right. like, what are you doing? That's right. Um, can, can we read this? Because I didn't read it this one. 
Uh, we we can. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to talk about it, it might be helpful if you know mm -hmm. if we read it. Okay. Mm -hmm. If we should we, should we work through instead of reading the entire thing, uh, one person? I don't know. I'm not in charge. Go ahead. Whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, read about different or the songs. Well, yeah. There actually, the thing is, it's really long to read the entire the entire portion because it also has the song here as well. Okay. I don't want to like take up too much of our time, you know. Okay. Um, but for those of you who haven't read it, I'm reading it now. <sighs> Speed reads. An interesting thing about because last week's has a correlation to this week's Pantara. Last week's Pantara uh, because it was related to Egypt, Egypt's destruction. Right. Where Egypt wasn't just a world power; they were the only world power. Right to the point where it's not even close. But by the time of the Haftara, they had regained their, uh, not all of their strength, but they were the world power, but there were other powers that were beginning to contend. So right. it was the, and so last week's Haftara was about Karkamesh, right. and the destruction of e Egypt at Karkamesh, which we learn now is because Babylon, the at the time, the rising power of Chaldeans that uh, Nabopassar had sent his son Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar then, as the as the prince regent, sends to power because of the success of Carthage. Right. So Egypt is destroyed in the first in the Torah portion, and then in the Haftarah, they're they were removed from history altogether. Basically, Egypt is never seen again as any sort of power. They're always a they're always a vassal state, right? Never again do they have independence as a empire. Mm -hmm. So in this Haftara, what we see is though is it's not Egypt, but it's the same. Uh, it's on the way. And if you remember last week, uh, Josiah meets the Egyptian pharaoh at Megiddo and says, "You know, I'm going to stop you from going up to Carchemish." And the Egyptian pharaoh says, I have nothing to do with you. What are you talking about? And basically, that's where Josiah is hurt and, and is injured in battle and he's, and he's cast aside and basically dies after that. And Josiah, the good king. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptian pharaoh then proceeds up to Carchemish and is defeated. So, but the battle that takes place is this same place. Yeah. So it's, at, it's in the valley of Megiddo. It's in the Jezreel Valley. The battle with Josiah is the same battle as what we see here. And in fact, if you read this portion, given that it is in the Valley of Megiddo, the Song of Deborah, chapter 5, sometimes you're reading through it thinking to yourself, wait a minute, is this what we just read in chapter 4? Or is this like the end times fight, which also takes place in the Valley of Megiddo? Because it talks about the kings coming and joining up with the Canaanites, and they're willing to come and serve and fight against the people of Israel. But then God's waging war with stars, which is really cool sounding. I have no idea what that means, but star Wars. Um, like literally Star Wars, um, <laughs> and like God's fighting against them supernaturally, which is very much like what happens in with the with Gog and Magog. You know, at the end, God rains down like fire from heaven and hailstones that are like the size of the couch. You know, on onto the uh, the armies of of evil, and ultimately has them kill each other as well. There's this conflict that God ultimately is the one who wins. This is really about the only place, at least unless you're considering the desert in Israel, that you can have maneuver warfare. 
Right. And this is why when uh, uh, Napoleon, after conquering Egypt, moves through the land of Israel and had to stand here at Megiddo and said, the armies of the world could maneuver here. It's the greatest battlefield you can find. It's a perfect battlefield. It's surrounded by mountains. Has approaches from the has approaches from the north, has approaches from the east, and has approached from the south. So you can have multiple armies approach here and fight. Right, it's a cool place, and it's really weird because most valleys um, tend to be kind of V-shaped. The Megiddo Valley is 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 flat, flat. I mean, flat, flat, like like Texas, <laughs> Oklahoma, flat. And then just out of the flatness are these huge mountains, just. Whoosh, and it's a really unusual, it's beautiful to see if you're standing on Megiddo and looking out, but it's a really unusual thing to see as well because it's so um, different from other places, but it sets it up well for a battle. And it's interesting because, um, again, talk about the setup. So Pharaoh gets set up with the, the sea splitting and all that stuff. The same thing seems to happen here. One, some people said that Yael is kind of like, you know, not really with her husband. Here, you know, she's anti the Canaanites, and he's one of their allies. Another way to look at it is that he's he, the whole way through is he's a double agent, because he's the one that tells Sisera, because they live near each other. Like it says that they they were over in this area, which later we find out chapter five is apparently Sisera's like hometown, according to Rashi. So like he's like, oh by the way, you know, I saw Barak taking ten thousand guys over on that mountain. So Sisera brings the whole army out after them. And the whole thing is a setup because with the the way that the battle goes, they're at the bottom by the brook Kidron, and Barak is up top. Well, Sisera's army has stuck in the middle. Sisera's army has an interesting problem. So, in ancient warfare, you had two options: speed, power. Today, you can do both because we have mechanics. But back then, you really did with in steel and other types of things. Back then, you had to choose one. You wanted the broadsword, that means you only really could swing it nine times before you were exhausted. You know, if you want the rapier, that's great, but it can get snapped in half. So the point is that like you kind of have to choose what kind of... So his army was built on iron chariots. His army is built to run you over. But when you're at the bottom of a hill, a mountain, those iron chariots are practically worthless. When you put them next to a river that miraculously overflows in the middle of the battle, now all of a sudden... He basically has like a large pile of iron, you know, anklets stuck to his soldiers. They can't move. So he he's the, the army then gets their primary weapon taken away from them, and God sets the whole thing up. It's really quite a brilliant military move, and of course, ultimately it works because miraculous things happen. Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought this reading this week that De Deborah doesn't insist on going. You know, if we were making this movie, Steven Spielberg's directing this film. Deborah says, you know, gather up your troops, go fight. Barack is getting ready to go, and, and Deborah comes to him at night and says, I think that I should be able to go with you. And he says, no, no, you're a woman, you can't come. And she says, no, I am a woman, and I believe. She gives this, you know, stirring speech about how this is the people of Israel united against the enemy, and this is when we found out that women can be military commanders. You know, <laughs> that's the way the movie would go. But the story is not that way. Deborah says, you go, you go fight. Barack goes, I'm not going unless you go with me. And Deborah goes, fine, I'll go, but because of this, you're not going to win. A woman's going to get the honor for this. And I think it's so cool because, again, we go back to what we were saying earlier, Deborah's a strong woman. She's a powerhouse. It doesn't mean 
that strong women have to be all about their own glory and their own power and whatever else. She gets it. She knows it's not her role to be the hero here. She's just the one delivering the message. But she's okay with that. And I think that's so cool that, again, talking about that balance, you know? I mean, we know women in our lives that balance out that strength mm-hmm. and grace, and, you know, there's a lot there to go together. And I think that Deborah has that one, has that one really nailed. Good stuff. Um, another thing I thought that's interesting here, so we've got, uh, they end up going out to fight. Uh, Yael uh, lures, the, well, the guy comes to the Ciso Cicera, is part of the first of all, background of the history here. Who are they fighting? Does anyone know? What group? Who's who fighting? Who, Cicero and his group are from a specific army. Fighting against Israel. Fighting against Israel, but who are they? The Assyrians? They're not. See, according to, I can't remember the verses here, they're Canaanite. Yeah. yeah, on that day, God subjugated so Yavin, king of Canaan. So uh, Rashi points out in the uh, commentary that he gives that Deborah makes an odd statement to Barak. She says, has not Adonai, the God of Israel, commanded, go and draw people toward Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men? And you're like, what verse was that in? I don't remember reading that verse. And Rashi says, they're fighting Canaanites. God told them way back in Exodus they got to wipe them all out. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, that's nice. These are the guys you're supposed to be fighting. I already promised you that I'm going to beat them. And so that's exactly what happened. Caleb's, Caleb's uh, cousins. The Kenites. Kenites. <laughs> the Kenizzites. And they come from, interesting that they came from Abraham. So he has, in fact, that's where we get Moses' father-in-law, saying, right. Yitro, Yitro, the next portion is related to these people. Yeah. So this guy, Heber... He's from the family, but he says he's living by himself. And the, so Cicero comes back thinking that this is an ally. <laughs> I know, right? His name means friend. Oh, this is the same word. Is it, I don't know if it's a chet or is it a... Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a chet or not. That would be funny if his name was actually... It is! His name is friend. That's funny. <laughs> Hey, buddy. Yeah, either that or he's darkness. His name's Friend, but he lived alone because he didn't want to live near anyone. I know, right? And that's kind of weird. It's dark. It'd be even Head funnier there. if he was short so people could, like, you know, he'd be like the last, like, army, you know, it's like, say hello to my little friend. <laughs> 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 Joshua, you may have said this already, but um, the description of Deborah, where, um, mine says a fiery woman. Mm-hmm. That's another way of looking at it. Um, Enthusiasm. And, but so I know Aish and then Isha are close, and I is it um it's the it's the labudot part of the fire. Oh oh oh. Okay. Yeah. So she's a torch. torch. A torch. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So she so same. Although they may be related, they might be. Right. Well, okay. and, and so she's. So you need to read it like a labudot, Isha labudot. Or. Oh, a woman of a woman of fire. Like a woman of valor, oh, Eshet oh, Hayil. So she's an Eshet labudot. Fire. I think both can be read here. She definitely seems kind of fiery. Mm-hmm. Um, her song and everything. Another thing I thought was cool, when we get into the song, one of the things that she mentions is verse, chapter 5, verse 9. It says, My heart is with the lawgivers of Israel who are dedicated to the people saying, Bless Hashem. In the, in the um, Rashi commentary, they, they highlight this whole situation. And of course, the Bible kind of tells us this too at the beginning of chapter 4. 
prior to the parsha beginning, that the reason why Israel is subjugated to the Canaanites is because of their sin. They have fallen away from God, and so God is trying to wake them up by having them um, lose militarily. And uh, what I thought was cool is that Rashi highlights this verse, and when Deborah makes this comment, verse 9, it's in the middle of, when Israel chose new gods, war came to its gates, was even the shield or a spear seen among 40,000 Israel. And the next verse is, my heart of the lawgivers. So Rashi's point is that these guys were in the, like, I, I think he's kind of getting at it, like, these guys were in the midst of all the evil. They were the good guys, you know, trying to curse people. And then what did they say that they do? They were saying, bless Hashem. One of the traditions about Boaz, who's the next book, Boaz with Ruth, is that one of the things he would do, he, there's this weird exchange in, I think it's chapter two, where Boaz goes out to his, his workers in the field and says, you know, blessed are you of the Lord, or whatever. And they respond back saying, and blessed are, are you of the Lord, and may your land be fruitful, or something to that effect. And the, the sages comment on that, and they say that his goal in, in making that a greeting was an effort to get people to remember the name of God, mm. to keep them, like, basically, so it's like he's trying to make it part of the normal life. And then you hear this, bless Hashem. And I think, you know, after we just sang, you know, the blessing after we ate, it's like the lawgivers in the midst of Israel's rebellion, they were starting with that. It's like, let's start with just blessing God. Let's just start with that. You know, worry about keeping Shabbat and all the you know, worshiping the right God later. Let's start with blessing God. Let's make that simple. And I think it's so cool that your Sophia here was singing so well. She did such a good job. And it's like, that's exactly what you start with. You know, you get these tunes and songs and these things, and she, you know, when, I mean, you know, <laughs> some of your kids, like, they're growing up, and it's like, they can hardly speak English, but they can sing the Hebrew, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, that, that idea that, like, that's something you can gravitate towards young, even when you don't understand it, it's like, blessing Hashem is part of, like, where you start, and that seems to be, like, what their focus was. It's like, you want to be, you want to feel good about God, be thankful to God, mm -hmm. and that's where you start serving God. Where do you see that blessing? It says verse 9, saying, bless Hashem. Five. Five nine. Five nine, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm bouncing around here. Yeah. Doing the best I can to keep up. Yeah. Five. Yes, indeed. One thing, too, is the, uh, the failure of Reuben to engage. Mm. And this, this goes with that law of the geography, too, because... Um, the Kenites were most likely came across the Jabok, uh, the brook Jabok, where where Jacob fought with the the, the angel, right? Yeah. Uh, to to engage there at the foot of Mount Tabor, and they, which means they they came through Reuben's territory. Reuben did not engage. Mm -hmm. Reuben didn't send anybody to help. Reuben didn't engage. He was basically Issachar, you know, the scholarly types. They were the ones that were like leaping to the to the forefront here. Right. And tradition, I thought it was, um, Rashi comments on that, and he notes, they're talking about Reuben. Where's the verse that's talking about Reuben there? Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, 15, 15, 15, 15, 16. 16. Yeah, 16. yeah, it says, why do you remain sitting between the boundary lines? And and um, I this is cool. They uh, they said, talking about Reuben, Rashi's commentary there, and, and some of the commentary from the Rashi commentary on the Chabad website, they're talking about this idea that like Reuben basically is sitting there watching to see who's going to win. So Reuben, it's not that Reuben is, is like, I don't want to fight. It's more like Reuben's like, I don't know how this is going to go. And I'm going to wait until it's kind of settled. And then I'm going to be, oh, I'm here. And the Kenites are kind of like cousins. 
So it's not, I mean, they're not Canaanites. I mean, those are bad people. These are Kenites. They're, they're our cousins. But Reuben's, but the point is that, like, Reuben's, like, Reuben's divided. Yeah. And it reminds me so much of, um. But that's what I mean, because they're, because it's like, it's not a, it's not an obvious threat. Right. And it's interesting, like, Reuben, Reuben, um, in being divided reminds me of, like, Elijah, which is also on, on. Same place. Same area. And he says, why are you torn between two opinions? It's like, if. If this is God, serve him. If Hashem is God, serve him. And it's like Reuben here is he's divided. And that's one of the things that Yeshua makes a point about in his talking about you can't serve God and money. Like Yeshua's point is you can't serve two. And that's exactly what Reuben does. Reuben's trying to kind of be on both sides. And as a result, he's on no one's side. And Deborah calls him out for it. Actually, I missed, I missed uh, Zebulon. We need to give credit to everybody that was there. Zebulon, Dan... Dad. Yeah, she asked about Dan, who lived much closer to the battlefield, remained by the ships of his merchandise to mm -hmm. escape from his duty to defend. Ash, Asher, he came. Yeah, but Asher, Asher, it, you know, it says it's okay. He was he was protecting the ships and the exposed points of the country, so. He gets a buy of it. Zebulun was there, and Naphtali. Zebulun of course, there, Naphtali's yeah. name means wrestling, so I'd hope he'd be there. <laughs> so we learned that there are some good men named Barak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> Technically, Barak is a great name. It comes from the idea of, uh, I think, lightning is actually what the name means, which is kind of funny because this whole story deals with like almost supernatural storm kind of element, but his name is lightning. But it's, it's never... <laughs> Paired well with Hussein. No, it's not. See, now his name, Barak, was spelled differently, and I think it has a different meaning. It does. I think it has to do with blessing. Like Baruch. It is pretty cool that Yael is, is similarly blessed for her zeal. Uh, it reminded me of like Phineas, Pinkas, you know? Yeah. He does like this incredible act of violence, but out of this, this zealousness for Hashem, and is similarly blessed. Um, He's blessed with like you know forever peace and stuff like that, but there's a really really special mention of uh, of her for her valiant effort. Yeah, Elk gets a cool blessing here. It says that she'd be blessed more than the tent bearers or something like tent dwellers. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the commentaries in the Rashi commentary text uh, compared that to all the different matriarchs. Like they list them all as being intense, and they're like, so Yale's getting like top shelf blessing here for her actions. They tell some cool stories. So, like, the whole Yael thing sets up, like, this guy's exhausted, comes in, she gives him milk, he goes to sleep, she takes advantage. In the in the, in the Rashi text, they're saying, like, that, that they pull from this verse that she gave him milk and a saucer of nobility. And it's like, the idea, I know it sounds funny, but the idea was, like, apparently that the, some of the words parallel, some of the way some of the words are used has to do with, like, water. So she, like, she gave him milk, and he asked for water to see if he noticed it was milk, to see how tired he really was. <laughs> and then like, or she gave him milk, which helped making you more tired. You know, just like, kind of like getting the feel for, can, can I really pull this off? Do you want some turkey out. too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get you a triple fish. I have a leg of turkey here. Have a bite. And of course, this ultimately reminds us of the story of, of Judith, yeah, yeah, Judith, who has the whole cheese and wine deal. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which goes very similarly. Which which is more realistic, really, if you think about it. And that, that's that's way more. Oh, yeah, Hanukkah, right? Yeah, it's Hanukkah. Yeah. Which so, is how they do that. 
Great. I took the whole tank, I think. I took a lot of drugs. Eh. Mm. <laughs> or a lot of brains. Well, she had to hold uh. She had to hold <laughs> the tank. <laughs> and then grab the big mallet. Well, she basically had to do it in one shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But she's got to hold the tent peg like over his head, but not touch it. I know. And then, okay, he's, here we go. He's snoring. He's like, don't wake up, don't, don't wake up, don't wake up. Don't miss, don't wake up. Don't don't miss, up. Don't <laughs> <laughs> that would have been kind of an odd conversation. What are you doing? I was hey. uh, uh, dreaming out a tent peg over here. <laughs> <laughs> Karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> I like to dance with tent peg yeah. mallets. <laughs> 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 that's why I think that's why she gets such a blessing here is because it took a lot of courage. It wasn't just that it was rather intense, but it, it took a lot for her to do that and and strength. And, and strength. I mean, it's it's, it's a soft it's part of the head. Yeah, it's L is a gazelle. Yeah, her name yeah, is, is a yeah mountain goat or quite gay, dainty. Dainty, yes, actually. Yeah, but a, not too dainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, actually, the, the gazelle... The, the ones that walk up the hill yeah, sideways. The, those guys. Physics. So if you go to the valley where David does his psalms in, in, in Gedi, uh, down at the Dead Sea, you'll see them. These little tiny, like, they're ibex, is technically really what they're called. So they're little they're tiny little, they're little goats. Little they're like, you know, yay big. They're little, almost like a little deer, but they have, they're kind of more stocky. And they've got, like, you know, little horns that, like, point straight up. And they literally climb up, like, the face of a mountain. I mean... These guys are not going up little hills. They're like picking their way on rocks and whatnot, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way it's I can do that. straight up and down, and they're standing there. Like, I got fingers. They're on hooves. How are they doing that? And I think that that's kind of, I think, I don't know, I feel like Yael's name has more to do with that. Because it, it kind of, um, it, I, I've heard some people say there's some relation to, like, Aliyah, like the rising up. Oh, that's not what the name means. Um, and so it's almost like she's, she's, her name is someone who overcomes what looks to be insurmountable challenges. Mm-hmm. And that's what she does. That's what she did. Mm-hmm. I see you like this name. Mm-hmm. I do like the name, although it's a difficult name in the land of Israel because everyone will pronounce it wrong in I the said South. if we ever named a child that, they would say Yael. Yael. Like Nile. Or Yale, like the college. <laughs> it's it's always been a favorite if we had had a girl that was on a girl. It's a cool name. Yeah. If we lived in the land of Israel, it would be much higher on the list yeah. than I think it actually is. But one of the things also, talking about what what she did, and not to, not to deny her strength at all, but there was a, had to have been a certain strength of, and a fortitude. It, it, not, not to minimize strong women of the Bible times, that they were obviously involved in slaughtering animals or whatever else, so they weren't as, maybe as, as delicate as modern American women are in some respects, but in other respects, this is a natural delicacy that God has given all women. Mm. And so it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of, well, she lived back then, it was an easy thing. I think it was a difficult thing, regardless. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, it would I, have been difficult for anyone, but especially a mother to have done this. Well, yeah, it's like that Jerry Seinfeld asks, how do women wax their legs and they're still afraid of a spider? You know, it's like <laughs> some things are built in. You don't understand, like, and that's okay. And so, yeah, no, I don't think it was easy for Yael. I think that she did something that was a challenge. And it's interesting, she gets mentioned as, like, in the same breath as, like, the Shamgar, the judge, uh, earlier in Chapter 5. And so one Rashi's commentary says that Yael was also a judge, that she it emerges, I guess, in the story. And and the courage to, to understand that it's like uh, you don't... You don't uh, you don't poke a lion. The idea that mm-hmm. if you start yeah. this, you have to finish it. Yeah. And this is a warrior that's asleep in her in her tent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the head if, of the warrior. If he wakes up, or if she doesn't 
complete the job. In other words, if she only inflicts some some injury to him, she's dead. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of like um, one shot. Remember, one shot. So Sophia is a curious young lady, and it's a very good thing. And she has a grandfather who loves weapons and is happy to show off certain at certain situations unloaded, you know, but not to let her hold, but just to like yeah, you can see that. She walks up, holster item. Grandpa, can I see that gun? And the answer is, that gun comes out. Someone is dying. You know, we don't take that gun out. And it's that idea. That's what basically where Yael is. She's in a place where this has to work, or she's dead. And I think that, and that's she's awesome. And a heavy hammer. She's awesome. Well, and no hesitation. That's the other thing is you can't. Does it mention a hammer? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Thank you can't just start. Yeah, you can't. You can't do the tap, 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 tap. Okay, here we go. Right. It started. Right. I mean, you know, have you ever like? Okay, so you got you put you got moving a long time. You have. Yeah, you're getting ready to put your mezuzah in, and you got that tiny nail right there, and you're just like, don't want to damage the mezuzah. Really don't want to hit my finger. Okay, you know, it's like there's none of that. There's no start tap. She's got to just go for it. Oh man, the, the text is descriptive to tell us, um, especially with, <laughs> like, with the wording, you know, the, and the translation and everything. Like when we say peg these days, I think like wooden and like one of those like two inch, <laughs> like, like a little wooden peg, but huge. But it, uh, it tells us specifically that it went into the ground. And so this is obviously a very, very long and yeah. very sharp, very sharp, you know. If it wasn't sharp, it's even more miraculous. <laughs> it just proves the Bible is not only true, but it's entertaining. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, I, I had to hold the tents in the desert storm. Yeah. Since her head stuck to the floor. Hmm. But the uh, in this in the story here at the end of the, at the end of the song, um, when uh, I think it's a cool contrast. Uh, Deborah. Toward the end, she says, So may all your enemies be destroyed, Adonai, and let those who love him be like the powerful rising sun. And this idea of those who love him like the rising sun, the sun is used so many times in describing like someone with great joy, someone with great excitement. You know, it's like coming like a bridegroom out of his chamber is how the, the, the sun is portrayed. There's this idea of like, um, there is like God is a sun and shield to those who love him. Um, we were talking about the sun of righteousness. Or in Isaiah, it talks about the idea like if you're going to do the fast the right way, that your righteousness will come out like the noonday, like the sun. And so this this concept is like what, what Deborah is saying is really something that we get in the in the parting of the Red Sea. Rabbi Gipel has this really cool comment. He says that part of the reason why the the song of the sea is prophetic <laughs> is because the entire people of Israel have been inspired with the spirit of prophecy in that moment. And the reason, and the, the tie into this that I thought was so cool is he's like, they have the spirit of prophecy coming out of an experience where, for the first time maybe in history, they saw God's justice meted out. When you read about the end times, one of the things it emphasizes over and over and over again is his reward is with him. It's going to be there's this justice, the idea that God is going to be in charge and it's going to be the way it's supposed to be. And, and today, we're constantly torn with, like, why do good things happen to, to good, bad people and bad things happen to good people? We don't understand. and We know that God is ultimately just. We don't see it. And Rabbi Gimpel says in the Red Sea, it was like that, that Egyptian, like, you know, punches the face of an Israelite when they were slaves. So he gets hit in the face with a fish. You know, it's like basically the idea is, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the point is that, like, Rabbi Gimpel's idea was to say that God needed out equal justice, a perfect justice, 
in that moment. So out of that experience of God, seeing God displayed in a way that goes, I see it. Now I see God for how he really is, this spirit of prophecy. And you kind of get that. that and they last... all get the song. They all know the music. They all know the words. <laughs> right, exactly. It's amazing. And so the end, the last verse of the song here, Deborah is basically emphasizing that point. She's saying, God will judge the wicked and he will reward the righteous. Amen. That's true. One of the cool things, too, is the result of justice is peace. And it says, mm -hmm. the land was tranquil for 40 years. Yeah. And that, I mean, you see that even on a smaller scale when justice is meted out within your own household right. with the kids. <laughs> but it's, there's a moment of, of, you know, discipline, but then peace usually results from that. Right. As opposed to just continuing to delay or, or making the waters more murky. And right. When there's not, like, swift justice... Then it, it can things can extend for a really long time, and, and it makes things worse and worse. Bribing your children with ice cream doesn't mm. keep the peace forever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. mm. we're gonna have to revamp. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sure, really that. <laughs> I was raised with the rod of discipline. <laughs> yeah, I think Julian was too. <laughs> yeah. Take that to the bank. Yeah. We'll make sure to get you guys one for your uh, baby shower. There we go. Mm -hmm. Rod of right. Oh, I thought you were going to say an ice cream scoop. Oh. No. <laughs> no. I think it's another spoon that, you know, get instead. But, you know, that's ultimately the whole idea behind this whole story. You know, God is judging the people of Israel, just like you're describing. They're sinning. God needs to wake them up and get their attention. And it works. The people of Israel, as, as Deborah points in this song, they cry out. They get to that place where they go, I don't want to be here anymore. And so God intervenes, and for 40 years, for basically the equivalent of a generation, right. there is peace, because, and Deborah judges them. So it's like you get that, that idea, that's the idea. That's what discipline is supposed to do. You know, we, we're about to read into Acts um, this week, because we're going to be reading soon. Some serious discipline there. You know, Ananias and Sapphira come in, and it seems like their crime is pretty small. You know, they lie. And they're trying to look better than they really are, but it's like, okay, you know, still gave. who who didn't who didn't tell you know you know honestly say their age or their weight or you know whatever you know it's like it's like a small thing right you know but no they like they drop dead and it's like a huge deal and it's the same thing we get with like the the guy who's picking up sticks on Shabbat, boom one time but you know what never see that one again, and that's the idea God's judgment is meant to be one time only, I it's so stiff and it's so harsh because. His goal is not to be harsh. His goal is to limit the amount of times he has to be judged. He would much rather us repent for good. And that's what he kind of is having to do with the people here. He lets them go through the situation with Cain and ruling over them, as hard as that is, so that they will have peace. Yes, Mom? Well, the thing that always comes to mind to me, Judges, is when each man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm -hmm. And to follow through with child-parent situation is... You can't let a child do what's right in his own eyes because there are consequences that come up. And, That's right. and, and to continue to feed that, right. it just causes problems. And so as the people were getting, that generation getting further and further away from the generation that was of Joshua, mm -hmm. and they weren't knowing the truth anymore or following it, you know, it was, it was time for God to say, okay, and for the people to see, doing what's right in their own eyes is not where we need to be. Right. Doing what's right in our own eyes, we need to see it from God's perspective, not ours. Yep. And in a weird way, it works. So the people of Israel get to the end of Judges, and it's this horrific tragedy with the people of Benjamin, mm -hmm. where a group of them do something awful, and so and they refuse to like 
beat out justice. And so people just wanted to have a civil war over it. And they get, it's funny, they get to that point, you think, it's so interesting to read that and realize right after that, I mean, within, like, uh, a generation, they're telling Samuel, we need a king. They're done with everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And I think it's so interesting that, like, they learned that lesson, maybe not the way that God intended them to learn it, that he wanted them to see the judges as, as being his emissaries instead of needing a king, so to speak, or either, according to one way of looking at it, he wanted them to wait for David. Mm. But they wanted Saul. The idea, though, is that they had gotten to that point where they just they didn't want it anymore. And I think, that's, I think the same thing comes true of kids. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, one of the things I was never allowed to do was tell my mom a lie. If I'd mm-hmm. said a lie to my parents, that was always a spanking. And the funny part was, as you know, yeah, yeah, you do it sometimes. Boy, those lies become more and more rare. You know, <laughs> those spankings. You're dreading those. And then you got to the point later when you're like a little, little bit older, and it's like now I'm coming to her telling stuff I did wrong. You know, I don't, no, I forget the lie. Now it's like know anymore. I'm just going to confess <laughs> my problem. Tell Juliana. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being that like you learn the lesson the hard way, but you do learn it. And that's that's being a, ultimately being a good parent, and with what God does with us. That's right. That's exactly. Final comments. Judah, I just like to say that most of the story is very intense. It's very intense. It's intense, as in. Oh, ah, intense. Good job. Uncle Steve would be proud. Don't get ahead of yourself. Mr. Martin, would you close out in prayer? Absolutely. Thank you, Father, for uh, for the Sabbath and uh, for the time to come together to pray and to, uh, to read your word. We thank you, Father, for the time that uh, Joshua has put into preparing comments and to lead us through the, the portion in the Haftar. We pray, Father, you would uh, bless us, bless our families. Thank you, Father, for this time in the week that we get to, uh, to just take a break. And to focus a day on you. We pray, Father, we'd, uh, you would bless us with a productive and successful week ahead. To our next Shabbat. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. 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 You were so big, so yeah.